My name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. You turn in your Bibles to Galatians, the book of Galatians in your New Testament. I'm not going to recap last Sunday. I, I went into a, a fairly detailed recap, I mean, a very detailed um, explanation of Paul's argument as, as best I understand it. But if you haven't, if you haven't listened to that, if you didn't, I'd, I'd urge you to listen to the to beginning part anyway, the introduction where I talk about how I see Paul unfolding his, his main argument through the book of Galatians. That being said, I, I would like to give us a brief, if you would, review, uh, because there's a divide amongst those who follow Jesus. In the book of Galatians, we find some some who follow Jesus who believe you need to be faithful to Jesus, but you also need to be faithful to the Sinai Covenant. And I keep calling it the Sinai Covenant because I want you to understand what we're referencing. We're talking about the covenant that God made with the people who came out of Egypt, mostly Jewish in heritage, but there were Gentiles amongst them. And and God formed a nation, a, a nation himself, which he called Israel. And he made a covenant with them on Sinai. And so people were preaching that you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to keep the Sinai covenant. Or in essence, you need to become a part of Israel. You need to become part of Israel. If you're a Gentile, you're going to need to do it by how how the covenant tells you to do it. But you need to become a part of of Israel. Now, the Apostle Paul, on the other hand, uh, is saying that to follow Jesus, you do not have to keep the Sinai covenant anymore. I would, I would say, and you may disagree, but I would say that Paul is saying that God has terminated the Sinai covenant, and he's made a new covenant with his people. His people, in this case, are not, I'm not defining them as being of the nation of Israel, Jewish or non-Jewish. Uh, I'm saying his people who come to him through the new covenant, through the Messiah Jesus. I'm going to go even further and say, and again, you know, there, you can, you're welcome to push back on the things that I'm suggesting because I want, you know, there's a huge segment of the church that probably disagrees with the, what the, 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 the conclusions I'm drawing, and, and that's okay. But I would hope that you'd at least listen to this and don't be from the beginning say Jimmy's wrong, but be asking yourself, okay, do I need to reconsider? Do I need to look at my presuppositions here and see if, if, if something different is being said? But I would say that Paul is saying that even Jews don't have to live by the Sinai covenant anymore. I won't won't look at you the whole time, okay, I promise. (laughs) Our one brother of Jewish ancestry, right? Um, But even the Jews from Jewish ancestry or from the nation of Israel do not need to live by the Sinai covenant anymore, much less... Do the new Gentiles who begin to follow Jesus need to live by that covenant? Furthermore, I would say, now listen carefully, I would say that Paul would say that if you teach or add or behave like you need to live under that covenant, not only are you wrong, but you are sinning against God, that you are going backwards not forwards, that you are actually, he actually uses these words, you have fallen from grace, all right? Because you have fallen from the grace that God has revealed in the Messiah. This wasn't an easy transition for people 
of Israelite heritage or Jewish heritage or is, I want to say Israel because not all of Israel was Jewish. Now, granted, it was 99, I don't know what the percentage would have been. It would have been mostly of descendants of, uh, of Israel, of Jacob, but it wouldn't have been all, it wouldn't just have been them. It would have been others as well. But because of Paul and Peter and others, the church, those who followed Jesus, they, they were able, even the Jews of that day, they were able to make the changeover. And today, very few people, and, and no evangelicals, meaning people who, who that I believe hold to the Bible, no evangelicals believe that we must keep the Sinai covenant today and be made part of Israel to be faithful to God. No one believes that. No one thinks that. Now, the rub comes in, as I said last week, and I, and I want to be clear, uh, I... I'm suggesting that Jesus, Paul, Peter, and all of them are saying that the Sinai covenant has come to an end. The covenant that he made with the nation of Israel that he formed there on Mount Sinai has come to an end. This is where some would disagree with me, and that's fine. But I think it's come to an end. And I believe he's started a new covenant, and he's formed a new people that he's going to work through. And this new nation that is going to represent him now, this new nation that is going to be his people, that were made up of a group of people who weren't his people, this new covenant, this new nation, this new people, this holy priesthood would be both Jewish and Gentile, because Gentiles are all non-Jews. It would be both Jewish and Gentile, and it would be the people who by faith follow this new Messiah, Jesus. There would not be a temple in this new nation. There would not be a temple of brick and mortar. Instead, there would be a temple that would be made up of living stones. Men and women like you and me who follow Jesus, we would be the temple of God. And God's presence wouldn't dwell in a building anymore. It wouldn't be in the Holy of Holies anymore. In fact, when Jesus died, if you'll remember, God took this, this, this giant curtain that weighed a lot, and it was really thick, and God took that curtain and ripped it in half the moment Jesus died. And I think he was trying to say that his presence wasn't going to be found in that building anymore, and not found in that holy of holy place, but rather that his presence would be found in us, and he would dwell in us now, not in a building made with brick and mortar, no matter how beautiful it is. Now, many Christians believe what I just said, but they would say that the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel on Sinai has simply been paused, that it's been paused. And one day, this new covenant, which is just sort of like a temporary thing in a parenthesis in the plan of God, God's going to take this new covenant and bring it to an end and go back and work through the Sinai covenant, although I'm sure it, it would be somewhat Different. And I have a lot of things in my notes here, but I'm going to skip them. In my, in my practice this morning, I felt like the Lord said, I don't need to go there. I was, I was going to try to defend why I don't believe that's true. And I don't believe that's true. I do not believe, listen, listen carefully. And again, I'm not, so we, not all of us believe, agree on a lot of things. And this is one area we don't all agree on, right? But I, I don't believe that this is a parenthesis. I believe this is the fulfillment of what God promised Abraham from the very beginning that he would create a people, the, 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 the promised people to Abraham. I think this is Paul's argument in Galatians. We're not going to go back there. I've already said this. But I, I think this is the argument that Paul's saying, making in Galatians, that the, the, 
the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham wasn't going to be in the biological nation or the natural nation that he formed 430 years later after his promise to Abraham, but rather we, the people of God, both Jews and Gentiles, by faith would be the fulfillment of what God promised Abraham. Now, again, not, not everybody agrees with that, and that's, and that's fine. And, and maybe we'll, we'll take a Sunday, maybe I'll do a Sunday school class, and we can sit and talk about this and have back-and-forth discussion on this. I believe Paul is pretty adamant in the book of Galatians that the new covenant has superseded the Sinai covenant superseded it so much so that if you go back to it, you're actually sinning against God. Now, whether that's a temporary thing or whether that's a permanent thing, I think it's permanent. Some think it's temporary, right? Regardless, this is his point in this book of Galatians, all right? So real quick, a summary of the book for those of you who haven't heard it. Chapters 1 and 2, a defense of himself and his ministry and what he taught. Chapter 3 begins his arguments for his point, which is that the Sinai covenant is obsolete, that you don't have to keep it, that it's not part of what God is now doing. And uh, so, so he's going to give seven arguments as to why that's true. Let me, let me re rehearse the first five arguments just in a statement each. The first argument was from their experience. You remember when you believed in Jesus, he said to them, you know, you didn't know anything about the Sinai Covenant. I didn't preach the Sinai Covenant, but yet the Spirit of God came upon you, and you saw miracles. Your experience was that God was working in your midst apart from the Sinai Covenant. Remember, these are, these are Gentile people in the areas of Galatia. The second argument was from Abraham. He said Abraham was declared to be righteous by faith, not by keeping a covenant that came 430 years later. The third argument was that the, the demands of the law are death. It's a curse. In other words, if you don't live to the law perf perfectly, you will die. So why do you want to go back and say, I've got to keep the law perfectly when you can't do it, and the penalty of the law was death? Why, why would you want to go back to that? That was his uh, fourth argument. I mean, third argument. His fourth argument was that the covenant that God made with Abraham by faith and his seed, which Paul makes really, really clear, is talking about Jesus the Messiah, not all the prodigy of, of Israel or Jacob. He says uh, that covenant that God made with Abraham and his seed, singular Jesus, that would not be superseded or replaced or done away with by a covenant that would come 430 years later. And so the covenant that God made with Abraham still stands, that the righteous are made righteous by faith, by believing and trusting God, not by keeping the Sinai covenant. The fifth argument was the purpose of the covenant itself or the laws of the covenant. He says, by the way, if this is true that the law doesn't supersede Abraham's covenant, then what was the purpose of the law to start with? And remember last week we talked about this. The purpose of the law, he said, was basically twofold or maybe onefold. It was to keep in check transgression. It was to keep our sin in check. And we, we talked a little bit about what that means, and there's some disagreement as to what, or, or there's some divergent thought as to what that means. But this, this is, we all agree, that the law was to teach us that we needed a Savior. The law was to teach us that we needed Jesus. It was a tutor. It was a guardian. It was, it was, it was to help us understand that we needed a Savior. And so that was the purpose of the law. So now that brings us to the last two arguments that Paul is going to make as to why we don't 
keep the Sinai covenant anymore. We're not under the Sinai covenant anymore. And you're not expected to be under it anymore. And he's going to drive this point home. Two more arguments. Here's the sixth argument. It's an argument from sonship and slavery. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he's under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. So here Paul is going to take a, a metaphor from life, or he's going to make an argument from a, from a metaphor from life and that of slavery. In the Greek and Roman world in those days, a, a child of the master was no different than the child of the slave, or even the slave for that matter. They were all under guardians. They were all under people that basically told them what to do. And he says, in the same way that the master's child was just like the slave child, and that he wasn't free to, to act like a son, or he, even though he is a son, he doesn't control anything, he hasn't, he hasn't received anything, he's just like the slaves over here. In the same way, he said, that's how it was with us. And he says, we were children, we were in slavery under the, element, under the elements of the world. Now, now, this is kind of a hard, hard thing to understand. This whole book is kind of hard to understand exactly the nuances Paul is making. But he says, when we were children, and he doesn't mean us as an individual. He means us as humanity, right? When we were, so he, he's making a divide between when Jesus comes prior to that and after that. When we were children, prior to the coming of Jesus, when we were kind of like the children of the slaves or the children of the master, he said, we were enslaved to the, to the elementary things, your, your text may say elements. What, what did my text say? It said elements of the world. Your, yours may say elementary things of the world, rudimentary things of the world. The, the, the term actually means just kind of the basic things. And he says, when, when, before Jesus, we were like enslaved to just the very basic things. Now, what did he mean? Here's what I think he means. Again, this is, this is Jimmy trying to, trying to interpret for us, but I think the rudimentary things he's talking about, the elementary things, are just our elementary understanding of God and, and the things that God has done and what God is doing. And he says, prior to Jesus, we, were just, we just had elementary understanding of things. Imagine you're not Jewish. Imagine you're not Jewish. So you don't have the oracles of God. You don't have the books of God. You don't have the covenants of God. You, you know very little about God at all, right? The only thing you know about God is what you see in creation, that he is all-powerful, that he's a great designer, all of that, right? And you, have, and you have the knowledge of God written on your heart, but that's really, that's kind of it. You just have rudimentary knowledge. There is a creator. I can see him all around me, but you don't know an awful lot about anything. Imagine you're Jewish now. You know a little bit more, but you don't know an awful lot more. But when Jesus came, God himself became one of us to teach us all about God, to tell us all kinds of things about God. You know, in, in the book of Hebrews, it says, you know, God spoke to us, meaning the Jews, through prophets and all. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. He's become one of us. So we, so we know an awful lot. I think that's what he means when he says, you know, prior to Jesus, you know, we were, we were enslaved to these elementary understandings of God. And furthermore, he would have said, we are enslaved to the law of God, the written code that we had to obey. Now, remember, 
The law of God wasn't ever given to make us righteous. So we've got to get that down. Keeping the law of God isn't what makes us righteous. What makes us righteous is God gives us righteousness because we trust him. We love him. We follow him. We believe in him. He chooses to give us righteousness because of faith, not because of anything we do. But prior, So prior to the coming of Jesus, he says, we're bound and enslaved to the law. So we have, we have this code that we need to we need to follow, okay? But just like he says in time, the master sets the son free from the guardian and tutors, in the same way that happens in real life, he says, now God has come to set us free. And he's come to set us free from our rudimentary understandings about God, and he's come to set us free from the law of God as simply a code that we just follow to the letter. So in verse 4, he says, when the time came to completion, what that means is when the time, when God decided it's time now, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. He says at the right time, God set us free from the bondage of our elementary thinking. And he sent Jesus to explain things to us and to, so that we might know, know God more fully. And he says here that uh, he sets us free from the law by sending Jesus. Born of a woman, by the way, it's how all of us were born. And born under the law, just how all, well, that's how all of them were born up to that time. Born under the law. But now he's come to set us free from that. And he's, he, he's saying that we're no longer under the tutor of the law. We're no longer under the tutor of the Sinai covenant anymore. When the right time came, God set us free from the law and he adopted us as sons, full-blown sons. We're the full-blown sons and daughters of God, no more slaves. And he says, because we're sons, God has put his, the spirit of Jesus in our hearts by which we cry out, God, you're our father. You're our Abba. And that, we, we don't get that because, well, you guys say Papa in your house, right? Which is a really endearing father name. But Abba meant, it means like my dad was my daddy, right? Or he was my dad as I got older, but he was daddy when I was young. That's different than calling him my father. My father is formal, right? But dad was daddy when I was a kid and dad when I was older. And, and, and so Jesus is, or, or Paul is saying, God has put a, a spirit in us or he's put the spirit of his son in us so that now we have this relationship with God where he's, he's like my daddy. He's not just my father, but he's like my dad now. He's, I have that kind of connection with God. The elementary things have been done away with. Jesus has revealed God to us and put his spirit in us. So we have a very different relationship with God now than they would even have had. And Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel, or maybe Jeremiah. It's probably Jeremiah, where God says he's going to write his laws on our heart. Remember that? So this is, I think, what Paul is saying right here. God is, is setting us free from the tutor of the Sinai law, and he's giving us his spirit who's going to write his laws on our heart. And he says, because we're sons of God, God has made us an heir 
with the Lord. We're an heir of all that God has for us today. And I think that heir part is that he's given us his spirit, just like Jesus would have had the spirit of God working in him. We have the spirit of God dwelling in us and living in us. Verse 8, but in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to the things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have, be, have become known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless, rudimentary, elementary things, the elements? How can you turn back to that? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I'm fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. Here's what Paul's saying to them. He's saying, guys, he said, you were once enslaved to things that weren't God at all. And what would he be talking about? I mean, these are Gentiles. They were enslaved to idols. They were enslaved to false gods. And he says, you used to be enslaved to them. You're not enslaved to them anymore because the elementary things, the rudimentary understanding about God is in the past. And you know that. You know that God, who he is, the creator of all things, you know all that. And now you want to go back and be enslaved to these worthless elemental, elementary things. And then he starts talking about the law and the special days of the law. So he's actually equating their idolatry with going back and living under the law. He says both of those are the elementary things. Don't go back to those things. In the past, you would have been enslaved to them, but not anymore. He says, uh, you've come to know the creator God. And he says, better yet, oh yeah, yeah, God has come to know you. Remind me of the verse where it says, we love God not because we chose to love him because he loved us first, right? I think that's what Paul's, maybe, maybe in the back of his mind, I don't think he said the other. I think maybe Peter or John said, I think John said the other. So maybe he'd heard what John said and that, that rang out in his ear. And so he said, no, no, it's God has come to know, know, uh, know us. Why would you go back to those worthless things? Why would you go back to living under the whole holiday celebrations of a nation that's not you anymore? Why would you want to enslave yourself to what that nation did when we're a new nation with the Spirit of God living within us and dwelling within us and leading us? And then he makes this statement. He says, I fear that, you know, that you're abandoning your faith. I'm, I'm fearing that I've wasted my time. I, I'm fearful that perhaps my labor for you has been uh, wasted. So everything he's saying, he says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid you guys, you, you haven't been born again. You, you're, still, you're still outside. You haven't come to understand grace. Now, the next part is not an argument, but Paul's personal appeal. Let me, let me show you that 12 to 20. I beg you, brothers and sisters, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now, this is, this is a highly debated thing amongst Bible commentators. What did Paul mean? But for me, it was really easy. I felt like I didn't even know it was controversial until I began to study. To me, Paul is saying, I became like you. I became like I didn't have the Sinai covenant. I'm a Jew, and I don't live under the Sinai covenant. So I'm asking you, become as I am, right? Don't, don't submit yourself to the Sinai covenant. To me, that's what he means. But, you know, others say other things. Paul wants them to know he's not offended by them. He says, you have not wronged me. Again, you know, just, just trying to understand two millennia removed from a written text, it's hard to know exactly. Is, if Paul was there face-to-face, -face, would hear his voice inflection. 
We know if he's being sarcastic, whether, you know, some people say that's sarcasm. I don't think it's sarcasm. I, I often feel like Paul when I'm confronting someone and saying something that's somewhat critical. I don't mean critical as in I'm criticizing them. I mean critical as in trying to help. I, I hate that. It's really hard for me to do that. I want them to know I'm not doing this because you've offended me. I'm doing it because I want to help you. So I think that's what Paul means. I think he's saying, you've not wronged me in what you're doing but I still feel the need to correct you because it's not right. And he goes on in verse 13. He says, you know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. I mean, that, that's because, probably because is, that word could be changed. And I don't think it should be used because. It should be, I, I preached you the gospel amongst the weakness of the flesh. Or, you know, it's not a causal statement. And that word doesn't have to reflect cause there in the Greek. You did not despise or reject me through my physical condition, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel or a messenger of God, as Messiah Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So then have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? They court you eagerly, but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. But it is always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I'm with you. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Messiah is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Here's, here's this personal appeal that Paul says. And evidently, when Paul was with them, there was something about him that he said, you know, it, it could have driven you away from me, but whatever it was, it didn't. I mean, they received him like Jesus himself. He says, you would have given me your eyes. Some people say that maybe he had malaria. You know, maybe he had COVID back then, right? Uh, whatever he had, I think it had to do with his eyes. And the reason I say that is because he says, you would have given me your eyes. So, you know, and I read one commentator who said, maybe he had just crusty, goopy eyes. And that's hard to look at someone who's got goop in their eyes, right? So maybe, maybe, that's, what, maybe that's what he meant. But, but he says to them, guys, you didn't despise me. You loved me. You treated me like a messenger from God. You would have given me your eyes. Why are you turning against me now? Why are you considering me an enemy? And then he goes on to say, they court you eagerly. They're trying to exclude you from me. They're trying to cut you off from me because they know if you get cut off from me, they can lead you down this path that's not correct. And he's, he's basically begging them, saying, don't, you know, I was, it was such a blessing. What happened? Why are you turning against me? Then he says, my children, I'm again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. You know, I'm not a woman. I've, I've watched Anne give birth a bunch of times. And I know this, that once the labor's over, the pains begin to subside because the labor has taken, I mean, the, the delivery has taken place, right? Now, I'm not trying to say later there's no pain after delivery. That's not what I'm saying. But the labor pains begin to subside after the deliveries come. Paul says, I feel like I'm still in labor pains with you guys. You haven't been delivered yet into the kingdom of grace if you're still going back to this place. So uh, that's his personal appeal to them. He's, his implication is, please don't let them do this. Please don't let them cut you off from me. Please don't listen to them. He says, you're going backwards. You're not forwards. 
You're going backwards. I wish I could be there face to face so you could see my face. I wish you could hear my voice because I think you know what I'm saying is true. And that brings me to the last argument. And the last, uh, the last argument is from allegory, chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through a promise. So he says, okay, so you guys want to be under the law. Let me tell you a story from the law. And he tells them the story of Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac. And the story goes basically like this. God says to Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a, you're going to have a child and his descendants will be many, many as the stars. And so a number of years go by and that nothing's happened. And Sarah says to Abraham, hey, why don't you take Hagar as a wife, have a child by her, and that'll be the fulfillment of what God has promised us. And Abraham says, yeah, it sounds like a good idea to me. So that's what they do. And, uh, and they have a child and they name him Ishmael. But that was never God's plan. That was never God's promise. That was never God's intent. God was going to give Sarah a child. God was going to bring it about. And they didn't wait uh, on the Lord. And so he brings up that story, reminds him of the story of the child born to the slave woman and then the child who would eventually be born to Sarah, the, the free woman. Then he says in verse uh, 24, now listen carefully here, guys. These things are being taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Paul says, I want you to understand, this is a metaphor. Now, I don't think any of us have the right to ever do this. I mean, I think we could say this is a picture and it, re and it could represent something. Paul says these things represent the two covenants that we're talking about here. The covenant of grace by Jesus and the covenant of Sinai that God made with Israel. And he says, and then he, then he makes this statement. He says, Mount Sinai and that covenant is represented not by Sarah, but by Hagar. And Hagar, Hagar represents that covenant. And the children that came out of that relationship, they correspond to present day Jerusalem and present day Israel, for she is in slavery with her children. Man, that, I don't think we realize how hard that would have been for Jewish people to hear what Paul just said. No wonder the Jews want to kill him. He just got through saying that, Israel is like Hagar and her children, the children of, of, of Israel, they're, they're like Ishmael. And then he says, verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And he says that, that Sarah represents the new Jerusalem and he calls it the Jerusalem that uh, is above, right? Because that's where Jesus is. But he's talking about the Jerusalem of the new kingdom that Jesus is organizing and Jesus is forming. And we know that later in the Revelation, it talks about Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and being here uh, in the world with us. And then he quotes a prophecy from Isaiah. Follow him. This is Paul. This isn't Jimmy. Under the inspiration of God's spirit, he says this from Isaiah 54. He quotes Isaiah 54 and he says, For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth, i.e. Sarah, i.e. the mother, the representative of the new covenant. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate woman will be many 
more numerous than those of the woman who has a woman who has a husband. And now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. So here's what he says. He quotes Isaiah, brings it in, and he says, and this prophecy here in Isaiah, it represents what the point I'm trying to make. The children of the promise, the children of this new covenant with Jesus, they're going to be more numerous. They're going to be more numerous because she was the desolate woman. Sarah was one of them any children. They're going to be more numerous than the woman who could have children. In this case, in this case, Hagar. And indeed, that's how it's turned out, folks. There are more children today by faith, more children of Abraham by faith, than there are children of Abraham by heritage or by biology. And so what he said is true. There are going to be more of them than there are of these. Now look at verse 29. Here's where he gets, I mean, if you think it's bad to that point, now let's keep reading. But just as then the child born a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, so also now. Let me just stop there and read and interject. He says, this is what's happening today. In, in the story back in the law, Ishmael picked on Isaac. He, picked, he was 12 years older than Isaac and he picked on him to the point that Sarah basically said, Abraham, you, I want her out of here and I want that boy out of here. And Abraham sends him out, which seems cruel and harsh to me. But then God says, send them away. Send Ishmael and Hagar away. I'll take care of them. But Ishmael is not to inherit with what I'm doing through your son Isaac. That's what God says. That's not Sarah. That's God telling Abraham that. And, and so he said, just like Ishmael picked on Isaac then, so today the sons of the covenant of Sinai are now picking, although he uses the word persecuting, doesn't he? Are persecuting, they're persecuting the sons of the new covenant. That's what was happening, right? The, the, the Jews from the old covenant were, were persecuting those who put their faith in Jesus and who were turning, if you would, to a new covenant away from the old. Verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will never be co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. Now, I, I, I shouldn't have to spell it out to you, but here's what Paul is saying. Drive out the old covenant. Get rid of the old covenant. Remove the old covenant. It is not to inherit with the new covenant. Now, whether it comes back later on in the future, that's another thing. But for right now, that old covenant is to be removed and they are not to coexist together. And that's exactly what the church embraced. That's exactly what the church embraced. And they did exactly what Paul and Peter and all of them, the conclusion they came to is that this is a new covenant and the days of the Sinai covenant are over. And, and it's clear from these arguments, I hope it's been clear to you, it's clear from these arguments that Paul is convinced and passionate about his conviction because he makes statements that are so over the top. Like, if you are embracing the old covenant, you've fallen from grace. It, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm scared because I feel like I'm still laboring with you. You haven't come to grace yet because you're trying to add the old covenant back in. That's how serious it was. And uh, of course, like I've said many times through the study, the church came to the right conclusion and even nobody today 
Very few people today believe we need to keep the old covenant to be made right with God. So that brings Paul's arguments to an end. I don't have any really application from the arguments themselves. Like I said, that reality stuck, and that's where the church has been. But I gave you a couple of gifts last week. Uh, one of them was uh, righteousness by faith. I can't remember the other one right now, what I said. Does anybody remember it? Well. The new identity, thank you. The new identity. And the brother helped me out at the end of the service last week with the new identity. All right, but here's the third gift that I didn't get to, and I want, I want to give it to you this morning. This is a gift for us two millennia later from Paul's arguments. Here's the gift. I want you to see the gift of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us as the sons and daughters of God. And I want you to see it not as this just mental acquiesce to the fact that the Spirit is in us. I want you and me to embrace this truth that the Spirit of Jesus really is in us. And he's in us to lead us and to guide us and to comfort us and to help us. He's the counselor that's come alongside us to be with us always. So in Galatians 4, 6, and all throughout these arguments, Paul has made this point because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son, the Holy Spirit. We believe this third person of God's Trinitarian nature into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave but a son. It's the Spirit of God that comes in us and gives us this sense that we are the sons and daughters of God. And if a son, then God has made us and there. And I got to tell you, listen, listen to what I'm going to say. And I'm telling you, of all the things that this study has done for the heart of Jimmy, this has been the one that has taken the deepest root. I, I want to walk with a renewed desire and this renewed passion to walk and live by the Spirit of God. I, I want to remember that He's with me and that He's guiding me. And, and, and as much as I love the Bible and as much as I love the Word of God, as much as I believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God, right, I want to walk listening to the Holy Spirit in my everyday life. I want to hear His voice. I, I want to hear Him say things to me that only He can say and then and just listen to him. He's not going to contradict anything in the word of God that he's given me, but I want to be able to hear his voice. And so I've been asking him, help me hear your voice. And, but I tell you, it's not enough just to hear his voice. We've got to be faithful to what he's saying. We, when he talks to us, we've got to do what he's saying. I, I said this last week, but it's so much better. And again, please don't hear me. I'm not, I'm not taking anything from the word of God. I've built my life on the word of God. I'm not taking anything away from it. But it's so much nicer, and I think this is Paul's point. In the old Sinai covenant, we have the written word of God, but now we've got God himself living within us to lead us and to guide us and to direct our steps, and we need to listen to him. And it's so much easier to have somebody who knows where they're going sitting in the seat beside me as opposed to me looking at a map. So much easier to have that person telling me what to do. And I think that's the point. And you know, the thing that just kept, just as, I, as I've been through this, you know, week after week now for several weeks, the thing that's just, just really, what a great gift we've been given that maybe we don't really realize 
that God is in me and with me and he's not leaving. What a great gift I have been given. Does that line sound like anything you remember? You've been given a great gift. You know who uttered that line? Clarence Oddbody. Anybody remember who Clarence Oddbody is? Clarence Oddbody is the angel in It's a Wonderful Life. And he says to George, you've been given a great gift, a chance to see what the world would be like without you. I want to say to you and me, we've been given a great gift too. And it's a chance to live our lives directed by God's Holy Spirit. What a gift God has given us. So I'm, I'm done. That was my gift to you. I mean, that's the gift that I think, not my gift to you. That was the gift that I believe Paul wants us to embrace and live by. And I just would, I don't even know how to ask you to respond to that other than to know the gift is yours and appropriate his life in you. Remember, he's in you. Don't forget. But, this, but Sunday, last Sunday, after um, the, the, the gathering was over, someone came to me and they asked a question. And they were, and I love their question. They apologized to me today. And I said, please don't apologize. It was wonderful. Because I really want to end, I really want to end talking about their question, if you would just allow me to do that. They asked me this question, and maybe you're wondering it. Well, what then is the value of the Old Testament? If we're not under the Sinai Covenant, what is the value of the Old Testament? Why should I read it? Why, why, why should it have any part of my life anymore because I'm not under the Sinai Covenant anymore? Why should I read that Old Testament? And let me expand that and even say, if the Spirit of God is leading us, why should I even read my New Testament? Why do I need the New Testament, right? Because I have the Spirit of God within me. I tell you, I love the question. And I mean, it was so good. It was so good because it said, wow, you're actually tracking with me, man. I really appreciate that. So I, let, me, let me give you real quickly, I want to give you six reasons why. Embrace what I'm saying this morning, but don't give up on your Bibles. Love your Bible. Love your Old Testament, right? Here's the first one. The Old Testament reveals so much about the character of God to us. The Old Testament reveals God to us. In Romans chapter 9, Paul starts off and he says, what advantage is it to be a Jew then? What advantage is it to being of the nation of Israel if indeed there's a new covenant and, and, and we're doing something new now? What's the advantage? He says it's everything because they had all the oracles and the covenants and, and the word of God. They had so much specific information about God. It was a huge advantage to be part of Israel because you got to learn so much about God. You know, it, God's goal for them and God's goal for us in the new covenant is the same. We're to be the priest. We're to be God's priest to the nations. We're to be the ones that represent God to the world. And in the Old Testament, that, with that covenant he made with Israel, you know, God teaches an awful lot about, uh, about himself. For instance, he's not a fan of making any pictures of himself and using them for worship. He's not a fan of carving anything out and saying this represents God. You know, it, it, without being told that, I might think, well, it might be nice to carve something out that represents the creator. He says, no, don't do that. That diminishes me. He, he's not an admirer of stealing. And lying and murder are not high on his wish list, right? Those are things the old covenant revealed to us about the character of God. Number two, the old Testament has much more in it than just the Sinai covenant. 
It has the Sinai covenant in it. It has the laws, the 613 laws prescribed to, uh, to that nation. But it's so much more than that as well. It, uh, it has the prayers of the people that loved God. We get to hear about their heart. It's the Old Testament tells us that God is, is pleased with faith that it's faith that he counts as righteousness. We learned that in the Old Testament. It has stories of creation and so much more. Number three, it substantively influences our understanding of key biblical truths. John saw uh, Jesus and he said to Andrew and to his other disciples, he said, remember, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where'd that come from? What does that mean? Well, you go back to the Old Testament and we learn of the Sinai covenant sacrificial system, which informs to us what that means, that Jesus would be the lamb that would substitute himself for us. The Old Testament tells us um, so much about, about sin and, and death and so about resurrection and life. And we, we see all of that in the New Testament. The Old Testament gives us a foundation for that. We learn of the Sabbath principle, the holiness of God. We, we learn that we are man, a God's cre a crowning creation. Where do we learn that? We learn it from the Old Testament. There's so much more than just the Sinai covenant. Number four, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. What that means is that he fulfilled the law of the Sinai covenant perfectly. That's what we believe. And all of its rules, he, he completed them perfectly. And, and uh, so though we're not under that covenant anymore as a written code of conduct, the Holy Spirit still uses those laws. And he uses the life of Jesus to help us know when the Spirit wants us to do something that's in the law, or maybe we don't need to do it anymore, what was in the Sinai covenant. The Holy Spirit is using that. Using Jesus who fulfilled the law, not destroyed it. Number five, Jesus said the Old Testament pointed people to himself. Um, in, in an argument with the Pharisees, in fact, somebody quoted this in Sunday school this morning. He said, John testified of me. My works testify of me. And then he says, the scripture, which would have been the Old Testament, testifies to me. Here's, here's the words from John 18. The father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one who sent, he sent. You pour over the scriptures. That would have been the Old Testament. Because you think you have eternal life in them and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life the Old Testament points us to Jesus. That's why you should read it, because you'll find Jesus even in the pages of the Sinai Covenant and even in the pages of the Old Testament that aren't about the Sinai Covenant. You will find Jesus. So Isaiah 53, the suffering servant is Jesus. Peter said in the New Testament that the Old Testament prophets wrote about, wrote about Jesus to us, things that we would need to understand even when they didn't even understand what they were writing. And finally, and I'm done, thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening so attentively. The Old Testament, listen, and Earl, you and I were talking about this this week. The Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, helps us test the voice of the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit, right? And yet the Bible tells us, God tells us, Paul tells us, he says, test the voice of the Spirit. Test the Spirit. Is this really the Spirit? How do you test it? How do you test the voice of the Spirit in your own heart? The Spirit lives within you, but how do you test his voice? Well, you test it against the things that God has written in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. How do you test the Spirit? Here's one way. There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. 
right? The Holy Spirit's telling me to do this. Well, there's wisdom in the counsel of many, of many counselors. Where does that come from, by the way? Proverbs, where is that? In the Old Testament, right? So, so the Old Testament and New Testament give us ways to test the voice of the Spirit in us because, you know, there are other spirits. And can I tell you, if the Holy Spirit is telling you to steal your neighbor's tools, it's not the Holy Spirit. It might be another spirit, but it's not God's Son's Spirit if He's telling you to te- steal your neighbor's tools. Not the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Old and New Testament give us ways of testing the voice of the Spirit. When speakers got together in the Old Testament, I mean, in, in, in the early days of the church, they didn't have a paid person with teaching gifts to do what I do. I'm not even saying that's necessarily the best way. That's the way we do. But they didn't have it. So what they did is lots of people stood up and, and spoke maybe in a meeting. Maybe there might be three people. Can you imagine three long-winded Jimmy's up here? We'd have to say, hey, the Spirit's not leading you anymore. Sit down. But uh, it said, test those speakers. How do you test them? It said, let two or three of the leaders in the church test what they just said. Is that from the Spirit uh, or not? So, beloved, that's six reasons why to read your Bibles and to read your Old Testament. Why? Just because we walk by the Spirit and just because the Sinai Covenant has at least temporarily, though I think permanently, been brought to an end. And there's a new covenant now. Even though that's true, there's so much for us to learn from the Old Testament. So, here's my my walk away with these things today. I, I would encourage you to walk away putting your faith in Jesus. I want to urge you to put your faith in Jesus, to trust him, to walk with him by faith, to walk with him not because you're obeying a bunch of rules, but because you love him and you trust him. And out of that, you will follow his will for you and you'll hear his voice. You'll learn to hear his voice. I want to encourage you to walk away this morning with gratefulness for the spirit of God who dwells within you. Look to him. Let's, let's look to him. Let's, I know we all know he dwells within us. It's a theological truth that we all embrace. But I'm asking you to look to him. Look to him more practically. Listen for his voice. Ask him to teach you to hear his voice better. And then finally walk away committed to reading your Bible so that you can test the spirits. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.